On today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, I'll be talking to you about a really, I think, essential coaching skill, the ability to appreciate a both-and awareness, coming straight out of Ericksonian hypnosis, but applied liberally and directly to the coaching profession. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Hello there, and welcome back to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Today, it's just me, I'm just me by myself here and uh, talking to you. But I want to talk to you about a concept that I think is really kind of important. Um, I use this concept all the time. It comes from the area of Ericksonian hypnosis. And before I get into this, I just want to say, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day about about coaching and how to market coaching and etc. And he was going like, I don't see the connection. I don't see the connection with hypnosis and coaching. What, what's that all about? And I just was flabbergasted, you know, to me, you know, I, I use hypnosis all the time. But I guess when people don't, um, maybe it's not quite so obvious why, why hypnosis is so integral to, in my mind, at least into the, the coaching process. So let me tell you a little bit about what I'm talking about when I talk about hypnosis. When I talk about hypnosis, I'm, I'm referring more to the, the Ericksonian bent of hypnosis. And if you don't know what that is, I want to take a look and check that out a bit more. It's named after, of course, Milton Erickson. Milton H. Erickson was a, a doctor back, you know, he died in, I think, 1978, 1979, somewhere in that area. Um, born in 1902, that much I know. But... Um, he developed a way of doing hypnosis. It's very different than the traditional, you know, waving the watch and getting a person going deeper and deeper down, down, down into trance kind of thing. Erickson was aware that people are in trances all the time and that when we recognize that, which means, of course, by the way, you're in a trance right now and so am I and so is everybody all the time. But when you recognize that, then hypnosis takes on a very different kind of meaning to it. And one of the traits of Ericksonian hypnosis is that when we talk to ourselves, we talk to ourselves and, and part of our brain is, is continuing to listen. But there's different parts of that. There's, there's, there's our conscious mind. There's our, what um, Dave Dobson refers to as an other than conscious mind or what Erickson would call the unconscious or perhaps subconscious. There's other parts of us. And when we talk to ourselves, who's talking to whom is a very interesting question and one that kept me thinking a lot sometimes back in college, you know, like, well, who's talking to who? And it was pretty, pretty deep stuff and uh, perhaps different substances that were involved could help me contemplate that even more deeply and abstractly. Anyway, uh, I digress. Um the idea of, of the conscious mind versus the unconscious mind, that's just called the unconscious for Erickson's sake. Um, one of the chief differences there 
is that the conscious mind has a kind of either-or logic base that things operate from. In other words, things are either good or they're bad or they're black or they're white or this or they're that or up or down. The other than conscious, I'm sorry, the unconscious mind, Erickson's term, was is more of a, has an ability to, to utilize a, a both-and logic base, both-and logic base. So things can both be good and bad, black and white, up and down at the same time. Not one and then the other, but at the same time, which of course logically doesn't make sense. Can't both be on and off at the same time. It's because we're talking consciously here. But you know, you can have a dream about, you know, I had a dream last night that I was swimming underwater. This is true. I, I really did have a dream last night that I was swimming underwater. There are some friends who were at this pool and I dove in and I swam underwater. I was going to surprise them. So I had this dream that I was swimming under, underwater. I woke up. I knew I was in bed, you know, and part of my brain, I'm sure, knew I was in bed the whole time um, that I was dreaming. But also I was in the water. I was both at the same time. You know, your unconscious mind is perfectly amenable to that. So that concept of the both and thing is what I'm talking about is one of the concepts, one, just one, but one of the critical concepts that I use all the time in my coaching business. As an example, um, you're familiar with Dan Millman and the way of the peaceful warrior and his um, other books as well. By the way, his most <clears throat> most recent book, and I believe if he used to believed his final book, his last book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, has just been published. It's the true story of his spiritual journey, Dan Millman, author of The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Um, so you might want to pick that up if you're a fan. Um, and one of the things in one of the books, I think it was The Journey of Socrates, uh, one of Dan's books. Socrates is a character in, in Dan's books, a very wise person. And in this particular book, The Journey of Socrates, it tells his story when he was trying to learn how to fight and be a martial artist and a kind of warrior um, for a particular purpose. And he was being coached by this guide in the Himalayans, I think, of mountains. But one of the things they were doing was they were training by running up these mountains. And, um, you know, early, especially early in the, in the training, it was very tiring, very exhausting. And and the little, I guess, I, I picture him like Yoda. The, Yoda. the guide was, you know, scampering up very easily. And um, Socrates was like, oh, God, I can't, I can't go on. And... Um, the guide said to, to Socrates, he said, you can quit as often as you want. Just keep your feet moving. You can quit as often as you want. Just keep your feet moving. I thought of that recently because I was up in Boston a week or so ago watching my nephew run the Boston Marathon. Now, I've run the Boston Marathon myself. It took me about... <laughs> well, not about. It took me, okay, about 18 marathons to qualify to run Boston. Uh, it's about 18 because I didn't all finish all of them or start all of them, but I was training for 18. 
Um, didn't quite get to the starting line for some of them because I got injured along the way. But eventually I qualified for Boston, ran Boston in, in 2004. Was delighted to go there and see my nephew run it. He qualified for it last year and ran it this year. And ran it, I'll just say for the record, a whole heck of a lot faster than I did. Um, not that that bothers me. It's fine. It's really good. I'm, no, I'm truly happy for him. And um, But what's interesting about that is that the concept of running, of racing, not the concept, the act of running and racing is, is a metaphor in my mind for many pursuits in life. And I learned so much from the process of, of training and working out. I developed my ease process um, to a much higher level than I had when I was just using it for music study. But, you know, I developed for, for during marathon training as well. Um, but there's, there's that idea of comparing yourself to other people. Like I was just jokingly comparing myself to my nephew who did run much faster than I did. He ran like a 257 and that's fast. Two hours, 57 minutes for 26 miles is fast. People who are not marathoners might compare that to the people who win it in two hours and you know, nine minutes, two hours, 10 minutes and go like, well, he was you know, 50 minutes behind them or whatever. Yeah, still <laughs> my best time ever was three hours and 24 minutes. So, you know, 257 is a lot faster. And, you know, funnily, we, uh, after we met up with him after the race was over, we went to this, this pub and we're having some food and drink and um, the television was on and it was now hours later, people were still finishing the race. The, the television was on showing the race. People were still running, you know, four-hour marathons, five-hour marathons. And this is at Boston, where you've got to qualify to get in there in the first place. So, interestingly. But the idea of comparing yourself to others can be problematic, can't it? You know, because if you compare yourself to other people, you can go like, oh, man, they're so much further along than I am. How could I ever do what they're doing? But you can also compare to people who are, like, finishing in four hours and five hours. There's those people too. So like compared to them, I did pretty good. Three hours and 24 minutes. So for me as a runner, when I was running, the, the value of comparing myself to other people was that it gave me incentive. Gave me incentive. I started running partially because I just wanted to stay healthy. My, my dad had died of a heart attack um, on my 21st birthday. Um, I don't blame him for that, but, you know, it was still a little unsettling that it was on my 21st birthday. Um, could have picked a different day, wouldn't have mattered that much. But nevertheless, I thought running back there when I started running was kind of an antidote to heart disease, that if you ran enough, you'd never die of heart disease, at least. Um, that is, of course, not the case. You know, the famous story of Jim Fix, the fellow who wrote the Thing that got the, the the book, I forget what it's called, exactly the runner's manual or something like that, got the whole running craze going back in the 70s. He died of a heart attack while running. So it kind of put some a spoke in the wheels there of that belief system. But nevertheless, I, I did start running because I thought it would be very healthy for me. It wasn't that uh, inspiring just to, to go out and run because it's good for you. 
so I got into racing and I started racing just neighborhood races, you know, 5Ks and park kind of thing. But eventually I met people who were marathoners and I thought, well, that might be fun. And I also compared myself and raced against my brother, at least not in person because he lived in a different city. But, you know, so how do you do that race? And we compare and I try to compete a little bit. But that got me to another level. Tony Robbins once said that, you know, the word competition comes from a, a Greek origin or a Roman origin. I don't remember exactly. Conspiratore or something like that. That that means to conspire together. That much I remember is to conspire together. So he says that if we're working to, you know, play basketball against each other and we play each of us as hard as we can, you know, what we're really doing is we're conspiring together to bring our both of our levels up higher than it would have been ordinarily. So you compare yourself to others to get better and to have that incentive. I remember once running a race where um, <clears throat> somewhere after about 24 miles on a 26-mile marathon, uh, I was getting pretty tired towards the end, kind of fading. And uh, this man came running up in a Gumby suit, Gumby the cartoon character, and he had a whole Gumby after he's running marathon dressed as Gumby, and and, uh, he was about to pass me. And there was just something about Gumby passing me that I just was like, no. (laughs) I will not allow Gumby to pass me at 24 miles. So I just like gritted my teeth and bore down and got to the finish line. Somewhere around the same, if you you see the pictures, it's me and and Gumby kind of neck to neck. Um, Kind of a funny picture, actually. But I did beat him. Thank you. Thank you very much. But it doesn't matter. We both did really, really well. I don't think he knew I was even there, so I didn't necessarily inspire him very much that I know of. Maybe I did. But nevertheless, you know, I used that to pick up my pace, even though I was very tired. Um, so we can we can benefit from the comparison to others. Ultimately, as a marathoner, and this is another lesson from marathoning. What you're really doing is you're comparing yourself to yourself. You know, how well can you do to do your best, to do your best? So you know what your previous race was. Maybe I'm going to try to do a little bit better than that this time. Um, I'm going to do my personal record. I used to keep track of my, you know, races. And if I ran a personal record, I could I put a big PR in capital letters and I'd colored in with different colored pencils and that sort of thing. It's kind of silly. But for me, it was like, yeah, that was, that was incentive. That was a little celebration that I could have and say, yes, I did it. I've completed a goal. And little by little by little, you know, you get better and you get better and you get better. So how does that uh, compute? How does that relate? How does that equate to coaching in general? Not obviously just coaching runners, but how does it compare to you? How does it relate to you and your coaching practice? As an example, have you ever compared yourself to other coaches and said, man, that person is just doing so well. How could I ever be like that? Um, the imposter syndrome seems to be quite rampant with people who are, you know, trying to be something that they haven't been yet. Successful coaches, as an example. 
maybe they're not as successful enough. Maybe there's part of them that always feels like, well, how, where do I get off being this expert, quote unquote, expert that can help other people? Who says that I can help others if I'm not really helping myself? And if we have just starting the coaching business, I, I don't have a like a six figure or seven figure, God forbid, you know, kind of income that says, yeah, follow me, do what I do and you'll be successful too. I'm just starting off. How do we do that? Comparing yourself to others, not comparing yourself to others, comparing yourself to others and not at the same time, comparing yourself to yourself and getting better and better and better. These are the things that are useful metaphors from the running experience. So you can compare yourself to others. Find somebody who's an exemplar. Find somebody who's doing what you wish to do. Model them. Do what they do. Follow those examples. Give yourself a break. You know, don't have to be successful today or tomorrow. Build that. Just like marathon you know, training takes a while. It takes a while to get yourself to be able to run 26 miles fast. 26 miles at all. 26 miles without stopping takes training. You can't just get it. Most people can't just go out there and do that. You've got to work towards it every day for months and months and maybe years. Work up to doing it. I will remind you, I ran 2018 um, marathon, well, 15 total ran marathons to qualify for Boston. I wanted to run 26 miles, not only finish it, but run it fast enough to meet the qualification standards for the Boston Marathon. That was a hard thing for me to do. It took me a long time. So that's what I'm saying. You can get to a place of success. Like for me, that was the holy grail of marathoning to get to the Boston Marathon. It took me a while to get there. It took me a long time to get there. It took me arduous study of how to do it and then going out and doing it on a daily basis running. That's the same thing we have to do for a coaching practice. We have to study marketing. We have to study our persuasion skills. We have to study our our ability to do the actual coaching and also put it out there as coaches in the marketplace. How do we do that? I don't know. Often when we're starting, you know, we don't know. But you build, you grow, you get better and better and better with experience. So you compare yourself to where you were last year, doing a little bit better this year, doing a little bit better next year, moving forward step by step and building those muscles. So you compare yourself to others, you compare yourself to yourself, and you keep your feet moving. You can quit as often as you want. Just keep your feet moving. So this concept of the both and logic base is very, very useful in a variety of ways in coaching. Sometimes I'm working with a person who has a... Uh, a bad feeling it might be a phobia, might be any number of bad feelings, anxieties about things. Um, I had a client recently, a coaching client recently. By the way, with coaching, very often what I do with a client during a coaching session is, um, you know, a conversation. We talk about things, we strategize. That's that's the majority of the conversations. Every now and again, I um do some hypnosis or do some NLP or do some some sort of process that helps them over a particular hurdle. Um, I don't do that often, but I do do it. And it is, um, you know, part of the part of the offer, I suppose, part of the, the, the 
unique selling proposition that I have as a as a coach that I do those things to people help help people get past uh, certain situations in their lives. So I was working with a a, a coaching client recently who had uh, anxieties about a, a particular thing they had to do in their business. Um, this was a coaching client, and they were primarily looking at a business application. Um, it's not always that, but it is in this particular case. And they had anxiety about doing that, and it was stopping them from doing what they needed to do in their business. So I hate it when people get stuck and stopped. So I said, okay, well, let's let's do this process. We, we did an NLP process with some hypnosis tucked in there. And we got the anxiety down, let's say, if it was on a scale of 0 to 10. Um, it started off at, like, at a 9. And we got it down to a 1-ish in this process that we were doing. And um, within that process, we were also kind of doing what in NLP we call the collapse of anchor, where we also were bringing in the opposite feeling of anxiety. So what would be the opposite feeling in that for this person? It was a feeling of confidence. So on a scale of 0 to 10, how much confidence were you feeling? And at some point or another, uh, confidence had gotten up um, to a scale of 0 to 10, up to, to about an 8 or a 9. So that's pretty good. So then we said, now, isn't it nice to know you can enjoy both at the same time, that you can have a little bit of anxiety, you know, one or two on that scale. So you have that feeling of nervousness or whatever that keeps you on edge a little bit. And it also has that confidence at the same time, that it's not one or the other. You don't have to get rid of the anxiety entirely. Maybe that might not even be appropriate. Maybe you want a little bit of anxiety as long as it's you know, like handleable. It gives you that edge gives you that feeling of like must get this right you know maybe you want a little bit of that and have a great deal of confidence at the same time you can have both and that is so useful in the coaching practice i just wanted to let you know about that today now in addition to this comparing yourself to others and comparing yourself just to yourself comparing yourself to others and not comparing yourself to others, just comparing yourself to yourself, both at the same time. A friend of mine, um, Jeff, has been talking recently about a, a new metaphor that he's been playing with, about looking over at your neighbor's grass and seeing how much greener the grass is on the other side of the fence. You know that old saying, of course. And so what he's suggesting in his metaphor is that you jump over the fence and you go over to the other side of the fence and and then you're over there and you know you look back across the fence and go like wait a minute what was i thinking it's it's much greener over there and his point is basically that um tend to your own garden <laughs> you know that be happy with who you are where you are and i think that's so true right we are us we are in this lifetime I was listening to a tape set by Leslie Cameron Bandler recently about self-esteem. And um, she says in that in the tape set, and it is literally a tape set, although I have it on MP3 recordings at this point in time, but it was released as a tape set back in like, I don't know, 1986 or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, she was saying back then that uh, 
self-concepts is so important and that sometimes people um, have this limiting self-concept of themselves. But ultimately, you will never spend more time with anybody else but you. You are the only person. You are the only person that you will spend your entire life with, right? You are the only person you will spend your entire life with. You know, no matter how much you love your spouse, no matter how much you love your, your mother or your children or whatever, you know, you are the only person you will spend your entire life with. So wouldn't it be nice if you loved yourself? Wouldn't it be nice if you thought, gosh, I'm cool. I like this. I like this body I'm in. I like this person that I'm in. Have that nice self-esteem. Live on your side of the fence and grow your grass even better. How do you make it even better? How do you appreciate what you've got, love as it is, and ask, how do I make it even better? How can I improve this little by little? So, it's nice to love yourself where you are and at the same time, you know, say, how can I make it better? And it's nice to know you can enjoy both of those things at the same time, loving where you are now and making it better for tomorrow. So it, it applies to weight loss, doesn't it? It applies to business practices. It applies to relationships. It applies to any number of situations in a coaching profession that you're going to be dealing with, that this concept of self-improvement, sometimes people say, well, I will love myself when I get to a certain place. You know, if I get then, then I will. Why wait? Why wait? Love yourself now as you are, and at the same time, take the steps necessary to get to where you want to go. This both and awareness is both and a concept where you can enjoy both at the same time is this critical, essential coaching skill. Thanks for listening. Always enjoying having you here. Step over at the EssentialCoachingSkills.com uh, website. See what's over there. It might interest you. There's lots of different aspects and um, links to other podcasts that we've had in the past. You can get information on classes that we offer, etc. over at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Also, there's other things that you can explore as well that I've done and are continuing to contribute to Ericksonian.com, DougO'BrienHypnosis.com, Ericksonian.info is a very lovely site to visit. So I invite you to uh, explore and enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. Really, I appreciate it. Enjoy your day. Well, that does it for another episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed having you here. Hey, if you want more information about Sleight of Mouth, you can find it at EssentialCoachingSkills.com, or you might even check out SleightofMouth.org. That's a nice website, too. Thanks. Stay safe. Stay curious. <laughs>